Section 15 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebury. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11, Part 2, Ireland. It is, however, worth noting here what Pitt wrote to an eminent Irishman on this subject. To the account of the duel which he had sent to Wellesley, he adds, You will hear that in Ireland the Jacobins, after many of their leaders being apprehended, have risen in open war. The contest has at present existed about a week. The government have acted with great spirit, and the troops of all descriptions behave incomparably. We cannot yet judge how far it may spread, but I trust with the present force and some augmentation from hence the rebellion will be crushed before any attempt can be made from France, and we must, I think, follow up such an event by immediate steps for a union. As to the behavior of the troops, Pitt was certainly ill-informed, but in such a matter he would not be likely to know much. The internal administration of Ireland was entirely independent of England. There he had neither knowledge nor control, unless specifically appealed to. After all was over, after, as an Irishman said, rebellion and its attendant horrors had roused on both sides to the highest pitch all the strongest feelings of our nature— he may have heard of the atrocities in Ireland with much the same emotions that later ministers may have experienced in learning the horrors of the Indian mutiny and the horrors of its repression. We know this, that when Clare attempted in his hearing a defense of the malpractices of the magistrates and the militia, Pitt turned round with that high indignant stare which sometimes marked his countenance and stalked out of the house. At the close of the revolt, a new viceroy arrived, Cornwallis, whose career had been marked by one supreme military disaster, had obliterated by his industry, his honesty, and his public spirit. He had not, perhaps, conspicuous abilities, but this deficiency only brings into greater prominence the sterling splendor of his character, and he remains a signal example of unsparing, unselfish, patriotic devotion to duty. But here his lines were cast in evil places. The one lesson of the rebellion was that the whole system of Irish government must be remodeled. What form the new experiment should take had long been tacitly admitted, and Cornwallis came over to carry a legislative union between Great Britain and Ireland. If the dismissal of Fitzwilliam may be said to touch the rim of a volcano, the Union is the burning, fiery furnace of the crater itself. Something, however, is admitted with regard to it on all sides. The Parliament that passed the Scottish Union in 1707 had been elected directly in view of that question which entirely engrossed the national mind. The Parliament that in 1800 passed the Irish Union had been elected in 1797 with no more reference to the question of the termination of its own existence than to free education or female suffrage. 
So far from the nation being consulted in respect to the obliteration of its legislature, there was not even after the conclusion of the treaty any popular election held for the members to be sent to London. But lots were drawn among those elected under such totally different circumstances and for such totally different purposes. Nor is it denied that this Irish Parliament, so wholly without mandate and probably without power to terminate itself, though this is still subject to contention, was practically bribed and bullied out of existence. The corruption was black, hideous, horrible, revolting at any time, atrocious when it is remembered that it was a nation's birthright that was being sold. It was perhaps less questionable in those days to buy up the nomination boroughs, or most of them, as chattels at a fixed tariff. Pitt had made a like proposition for England in his plan of parliamentary reform. Close boroughs then represented not merely a vested interest, but property of the most tangible and recognized kind. But what stands without either shame or palliation was the remodeling in the autumn and winter of 1799 of the House of Commons after it had rejected the Union propositions. Between the close of the session of 1799 and the beginning of that of 1800, between June and January, 63 seats out of a total of 300 were vacated. Some of those who had held them were cajoled, some were bribed into office and out of Parliament, the mass departed because the patrons of their boroughs had been bought over to the Union. In this way, without a dissolution, the whole complexion and constitution of the House was changed. In the session of 1799, the Irish Parliament rejected the propositions of the government for a union. When Parliament was opened in 1800, there was not the slightest allusion to the measure of union in the speech from the throne, but 39 writs were at once moved. The entire patronage and terror of the Crown were employed to pack Parliament and purchase the patrons of Parliament. It rained honey and gall, as occasion required, offices and peerages, or dismissal in disgrace. Castlereagh, now chief secretary and the executive agent in this degrading traffic, pursued his task without flinching or remorse. Not Strafford was more thorough. Cornwallis expressed his loathing and disgust of the whole transaction. Castlereagh neither felt nor expressed any. He, in fact, hoped that corruption would die of a sort of surfeit, that it would perish by this final exaggeration, and that by one supreme, shameless, wholesale effort he could put an end to it forever. Under these circumstances and auspices, the measure was passed in 1800, both in Ireland and in England, the Irish debates produced much fine and significant speaking, in which Foster against and Fitzgibbon, now Clare, for the Union, bore off the palm. Many weighty predictions from such men as Parsons and Grattan that a Union so forced on 
would inevitably imperil the entire connection between the two countries, some ominous prophecies of the sinister influence that the Irish contingent would exercise over British politics. Charlemont, indeed, had always opposed any union on the ground that no other measure could so effectually contribute to the separation of the two countries. In Ireland itself, there was a comparative apathy, produced by the ruinous struggles of the last few years, only in Dublin, the dying capital, was there a last agony of patriotism. On the other hand, all the efforts of the government, unrelentingly applied, could produce but a few thinly signed petitions in support of the bill, not a twelfth of those against it. It passed by purchase. The whole unbribed intellect of Ireland, says an eminent historian, was opposed to it. Of the members who composed the majority in its favor, it is computed that only seven voted for it without any consideration. In the House of Commons, the minority set their names to an address recapitulating the evils and ignominies of the measure. In the House of Lords, it was followed by an eloquent protest headed by Leinster, the only Irish duke, and completed by such signatures as those of Downshire and Meath and Moira and Powerscourt. After an easy passage through the British Parliament, it received the royal assent in July. With regard to the Union, two separate questions have to be considered. Firstly, were the means by which it was carried justifiable? Secondly, was it a right measure in itself? On both these points, it is necessary to keep in mind the preliminary remark that has been made. It is easy on the brink of the 20th century to censure much in the 18th. But is it candid to do so without placing oneself as far as possible in the atmosphere, circumstances, and conditions of the period which one is considering? Have Pitt's critics done this? Have they judged him by the standards and ideas of his time, and not by the standards and ideas of their own? That is the spirit in which history judges statesmen, and for a simple reason. Had they attempted to carry into effect in their generation the ideas of ours, they would not have been statesmen at all. They would have been voices crying in the wilderness. They might have been venerated as well-intentioned visionaries, or imprisoned as agitators, and even as lunatics, but statesmen they would not have been in name or in fact. A statesman measures the opinions and forces that surround him and proceeds to act accordingly. He is not laying his account with remote posterity or legislating for it. The politician, who is a century before his time, is hardly more a statesman than the politician who is a century behind it. The man who doses a child with colchicum, or who attempts to cure atrophy by bleeding, is neither in name nor in fact a physician. To apply what is wholesome at one stage of growth or of disease to an age or an ailment totally different is merely dangerous quackery. To the man who attempts such mortal mischief in politics is commonly denied the power, and for this reason doctrines in advance of the age, as they are called, are usually the copyright of philosophers entirely dissociated from affairs. It is in this spirit that history truly and justly written apportions blame and praise to men, 
judging by contemporary canons and not by ours. It is thus that history weighs in her balance Caesar and Richelieu, and William the Third and Jimenez and Oxenstierna. Were it otherwise, she would hold the Third Duke of Richmond with his universal suffrage and annual parliaments a greater statesman than Pitt or Burke or any of his contemporaries. To Pitt alone is meted out a different measure. He alone is judged not by the end of the 18th, but by the end of the 19th century. And why? Because the Irish question which he attempted to settle is an unsettled question still. He alone of the statesmen of the 18th century, with the exception of Burke and perhaps Chesterfield, saw its importance and grappled with it manfully. Since then, many ministers have nibbled at it, whose efforts are buried in decent obscurity. But Pitt's career is still the battlefield of historians and politicians because he is responsible for the Treaty of Union, and because he resigned and did not do something, neither known nor specified, but certainly impossible to carry what remained of Catholic emancipation. Of the corruption by which the Union was carried, something remains to be noted. It was, admittedly, wholesale and horrible. But it must in fairness be remembered that this was the only method known of carrying on Irish government, the only means of passing any measure through the Irish Parliament, that so far from being an exceptional phase of politics, it was only three or four years of Irish administration rolled into one. No Irish patriot can regard the Union as other than the sale of his Parliament, justifiable or unjustifiable according to his politics. But for an English minister of that day, the purchase of that Parliament was habitual and invariable. The quotations of the parliamentary market were as well known as the quotations of wheat and of sugar. It is scarcely possible to open a letter from an Irish viceroy or an Irish secretary of that time without finding a calculation for the hire, open and avowed, of some individual or influence or some cynical offer by some hungry nobleman of his interest for a determined price. It was the ordinary daily life of Dublin Castle, it was the air which the government breathed, the nourishment which alone enabled it to exist. No one condemned it any more than the neighbors of Washington condemned him for owning slaves. And the reason is simple. The Irish executive was appointed in England solely with reference to English considerations. The parliament through which this executive had to pass its measures was an Irish parliament, elected so far as it was freely elected, with reference to Irish considerations. The government and its policy were entirely exotic, and the attempt to root them in Irish soil was a perpetual strife with nature. An artificial temperature had to be formed for them, and that was corruption. A means of bringing the government and the parliament into relations had to be found, and that was corruption. A means of carrying government measures through Parliament had to be discovered, and that was corruption. For a government which rules in disregard or defiance of Parliament must resort to bribery or resort to force. 
There was no force available. Corruption, therefore, was the indispensable agency. The absolute severance of the executive and the legislature, both in nature and origin, produced an unnatural and unworkable condition of affairs. It was only by bribery that the machine could be set going at all. The great measure of Catholic emancipation was only carried in 1792-1793 by castle influence, that is, by direct or indirect corruption through a reluctant Parliament. Had Fitzwilliam been allowed to carry the complement of these bills in 1795, he could only have done it by the same means. The executive was in no way responsible to Parliament. Had Parliament been unanimous in opposition, it could not have changed a minister. Any bill, therefore, that the government wished to pass was a subject of separate negotiation with the jobbers of the country. These were generally recalcitrant in proportion to their power and had to be purchased accordingly. There were, in reality, no constituencies for the government to appeal to. As out of the 300 members of the House, 124 were nominated by 52 peers and 64 by 36 commoners, it was with the owners of the constituencies that the government had to deal. It must be understood, then, that corruption was not a monstrous, abnormal characteristic of the Union. It was the everyday life and atmosphere of Irish politics. Was it not better, it may be then urged, that this system should end? Was it not better, at the worst, and once for all, to make a regiment of peers and an army of baronets, to buy the rotten boroughs at the price of palaces, than to go on in this vile old way, hiring, haggling, jobbing, from one dirty day to another, from one miserable year to another, without hope or self-respect, poisoning the moral sense and betraying the honest judgment of the country in the futile, endless attempt to maintain the unnatural predominance and the unreal connection of an alien executive and a sectional legislature? If the answer be yes, the means are to that extent justified, for there were no others. It may, however, be said that even if it be granted that the system was vile and rightly ended and ended by the only practicable methods, it might have been replaced by something better than the Union. To some of us now living, this seems clear enough, but had we lived then, is it certain that our judgment would have been the same? We were engaged in a war, not of winter quarters and of summer quarters, and of elegant expeditions some way off, and of musketeers in laced gloves and periwigs saying, gentlemen, fire first. Not a war of the eighteenth century, but naked men were fighting for life and freedom with despair. They were crossing the ice barefoot in rags. They were capturing fleets with cavalry. Both we and our foes believed it to be a struggle between existence and extinction. Fortunately, it ended in existence for us, nearly exhausted and in terrible debt, but still existence. At the end of the 18th century, however, such a result was by no means certain. We formed the main object of an enemy who had conquered half Europe. Thrice had that enemy invaded Ireland, and it was certain that an invasion of England was only a question of time. 
In so appalling a crisis a new arrangement had, by the admission of all parties, to be formed for Ireland. Grattan himself had tacitly given up his own Parliament as hopeless, for he had withdrawn from it and encouraged the discussion of Irish affairs in the British legislature. What wonder, then, if from the natural tendency to draw closer and closer and closer, yet in the presence of an overpowering danger, men's minds should have turned with rare unanimity to the idea of a union. During a campaign, even a single parliament sometimes seems a superfluity and a second a danger. What would happen if in war, as on the regency question, the British parliament should take one line in the Irish Parliament, the other. If, however, they became united, it would be safe, in view of the overwhelming Protestant majority in England and Scotland, to give concessions that otherwise would be impossible to the overwhelming Catholic majority in Ireland. Internal free trade would give Ireland material prosperity, but without a union the British commercial classes would not hear of any such arrangement. Neither concession, neither Catholic relief, nor internal free trade would, in the then temper of men's minds, have had a chance of acceptance in England so long as they were made to the independent parliament of a hostile nation. But on Catholic relief and on internal trade, Pitt's mind was set. Again, if a union were achieved, there would be no focus for French intrigue. The executive of the two countries had always been practically one. To make the two parliaments one would place the conditions of government on a natural basis. But above all was the consideration that Great Britain would now face the world with a united front, with a single parliament in which the elements of loyalty and stability would be in incalculable majority. These arguments, whatever may now be thought of their value, appealed with irresistible force to statesmen, for whom, struggling in a great war, unity and simplicity of government were everything. But Pitt never thought, as some seem since to have thought, that the Union should stand alone. He never deemed it a divine instrument, admirable and venerable by its own natural essence, he considered it as only a part, and not even the most important part, of a great healing policy in Ireland, and that, almost if not quite, simultaneously the other parts should be applied. The last limitations of the Catholics removed, the clergy, other than those of the established church, provided with stipends, the oppression of tithe abolished. These were inseparable constituents of his scheme, had his hands been free, he might have even dealt with the evils of the land system, at least as regards absenteeism. Who will say that, followed up by large, spontaneous, and simultaneous concessions of this kind, the policy of union would not have been a success? Had Pitt, in face of the difficulties that presented themselves, temporarily dropped Catholic emancipation and only carried a tithe bill in 1801, the Union might at least have had a fair start. Frere, who knew Pitt well, declared that it was not true that Pitt ever regarded Catholic emancipation as a sop to be offered to the Irish to make them accept the Union, 
On the contrary, he regarded, as Frere knew, the emancipation of the Catholics as the more important measure of the two, and he would gladly have carried it at any time. The Union was to pave the way and conciliate British opinion. The word Union, Pitt's Lord Lieutenant wrote, as he was passing the measure, will not cure the evils of this wretched country. It is a necessary preliminary, but a great deal more remains to be done. That was Pitt's view. But on this necessary preliminary, or foundation, succeeding ministries reared either structures he had never contemplated, or no structure at all. He passed the Union with one object. It has been diverted to another. There was a curse upon it. It drove its very author from office in the full plenitude of his authority, in the very moment of the triumph of passing it. Never did Pitt hold power again. For his last two years of suffering and isolation do not deserve the name. And so all went wrong. The measure of union stood alone, and it was one of the drawbacks of that luckless measure that it left all the remaining machinery of independence when it took away the Parliament. Every other characteristic of a separate state everything to remind men of what had been. It was like cutting the face out of a portrait and leaving the picture in the frame. The fragment of policy flapped forlornly on the deserted mansions of the capital, but there was enough to remind men of what had been. It was impossible, for example, to destroy that Ionian colonnade, which remains one of the glories of Dublin, so the government transformed into a bank the noble hall which had resounded with some of the highest flights of human eloquence, which was indissolubly connected with such names as Flood and Grattan and Charlemont, and which was imperishably imbued with the proud memories of an ancient nationality. Men, as they passed, murmured that that was the home of their parliament, which nothing had obliterated and nothing had replaced. But all that man could do was done to obliterate the rest of Pitt's policy. Addington's Irish government went over with express instructions to do nothing for the Catholics, nothing for the dissenters, but to push and promote the established church in every way. The Union alone remained even to indicate what Pitt's plan had been, and that was a misleading indication. Catholic emancipation waited for thirty, and tithe reform waited for nearly forty embittered and envenomed years. The time for ecclesiastical stipends provided by the state passed away forever. The bright promises of financial improvement that had been held out to Ireland faded away into bankruptcy. Seventy years afterwards, the Irish Church establishment, which it had been one of the main objects of the treaty to preserve, suddenly toppled over and disappeared. With it went the keystone of the Union, and so it is Pitt's sinister destiny to be judged by the petty fragment of a large policy which he did not live to carry out a policy unhappy in execution and result, but which was, it may be fairly maintained, 
as generous and comprehensive in conception as it was patriotic in motive. It was at any rate worth trying, where so many had failed, but it had no trial. The experiment was scarcely even commenced, and the ruinous part that remains exposed as it has been to the harshest storms of nine decades is judged and venerated as if it were the entire structure. End of section 15